today's scripture reading is from Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, 20 through 21, and 29 through 34. You can find it on page 81 in a blue Bible under a chair near you, or you can just listen. Uh, please stand as we give attention to God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist, and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water, and then put them on, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of, of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one, brand, one ram for a burnt offering. Skip down to verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of a meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their inequities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat, goat go free in the wilderness. Skip down to verse 29. And it shall be a statue to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day, shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statue forever. And the priest who was, who was anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you. The atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in, once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. This is God's word. You can be seated. Good morning, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and uh, it's great to have you with us this morning. We have been, uh, the last, I think, uh, I don't know, eight weeks or so, uh, working our way through the book of Leviticus. And this morning we are uh, wrapping up our series on the book of Leviticus, and uh, just wanted to give you a kind of a heads up uh, what, what's coming the rest of the summer. Next week we're going to start a series on the book of Psalms. And that's going to take us most of the way through the summer. And then at the end of the summer, kind of going into the fall, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. And I'm going to do a series called Why. 
And uh, what's going to be different about this series is that instead of me figuring out what we're going to talk about, I'm asking you to submit any questions that you might have. If you've ever had a question about God or about the Bible, or if you've ever found yourself um, just thinking, you know, it'd be really interesting to hear a sermon about a particular topic, uh, you can go to resoc.life and click on the, um, the little button that says why and submit a question. And uh, we're gonna take those questions and, and exclude the snarky ones that um, people put in. <laughs> and uh, we'll just ignore those. And, um, but the real questions, um, those will be the basis for, uh, I think, a four or five week sermon series that we're gonna do um, in August. So uh, please take a moment to do that. You can submit as many questions as you want. If we don't get enough questions, then I guess I will um, submit a few myself. So. Uh, With that, why don't you pray with me? Join me in prayer as we come to the book of Leviticus. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the places that um, your word is very clear and speaks very directly to us. Um, For those places that um, have brought comfort to your people um, through familiarity and through repetition. And God, we thank you for um, parts of your word, like much of the book of Leviticus, that we, that we don't listen to as often. And uh, I pray that uh, as we look at this, this portion of Leviticus that is uh, not particularly um, well known to many of us, I'm assuming in this room, that you would speak to us. And God, what we need is... Um, is understanding, but what we need is not just to learn new information. What we need is not just to uh, understand what these words would have meant to an ancient culture in a very different place a long time ago. God, what we need ultimately is you. And so would you give us yourself as we give our attention to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Many, uh, several years ago, I read a book by Franz Kafka, who is, I believe, a Czech author, uh, called The Trial. This is a book that I, you may have read, you may have never heard of it, uh, but we were actually in Prague, and uh, there was this place, we were on vacation, and there's this place called the, the Kafka Cafe, and it just kind of piqued my interest. Who is this guy, Franz Kafka, and, uh, and what, is, what is his, uh, you know, you might have read The Trial, in college, if you took a literature class in college, something like that. Um, the trial is about a man who, on the day of his 30th birthday, two men show up at his house, and they arrest him. And he, he undergoes his initial hearing, uh, and that's what happens at the beginning. And then a year later, on his 31st birthday, two men show up at his house, and he knows why they're there. And these two men escort him to the edge of the town, and they shoot him in the back, and he willingly goes with them, and he dies. And the intervening, you know, it's the beginning and the end of the chapter. I just read ruined the book for you, but. <laughs> but the middle part of the book is, describes this intervening year, and this man's um, struggle with a nameless, faceless authority, with an invisible law, and with the question of, what did I actually do? The entire time he is preparing for his trial and he has never actually told what he has been accused of. And so he, he wrestles with, um, uh, he, he wrestles with 
you know, the, the seeming injustice of the situation, with the absurdity of this situation. But as the time goes on, he also begins to wrestle with his own um, insecurity and his own questions about himself and whether there might actually be something in his past that he's tried to forget that has now come back to haunt him. And so he goes through a, a variety of wild emotions throughout the course of this, uh, this story. Um, there are times when he decides, you know, this whole thing is so ludicrous and he's just going to buck up and he's going to burst in. He doesn't even know where the courtroom is, but he's going to burst into any courtroom anywhere and he's going to make this grandiose speech and he's just going to expose the charade that this whole thing really is. Um, and then there are other times when he's depressed and he is despondent and he is convinced that whatever it is that he's accused of, he's probably actually guilty of it. Now, uh, I bring this up to say, well, one, it's just a weird <laughs> and haunting story. But I bring it up this morning to say that I think it's actually a really accurate picture of the way that many of us live today. Many of us live, I think, with this vague sense that there is a nameless, faceless judge somewhere that we cannot communicate with, and yet he is holding something against us. And we respond to that in many different ways. And sometimes we might just laugh at the idea. I was, I was speaking with a woman this week who was telling me, I mean, the whole idea that there's a God who keeps um, or track of what people have done wrong just seems so ludicrous and ridiculous to me. And I can't even, I wouldn't even begin to discuss, you know, whether that's a reality. We might, we might mock it. We might joke about it. At other times, we might simply struggle under the weight of our past and wonder if there's any hope for us at all. And just like the main character in the trial, we are trying to quiet the judge and jury on our own hearts without any real clarity of what we've actually been accused of. Now let me, if you think that sounds grandiose, let me give you a couple of examples of, of ways that we often feel like that. Um, have you ever had to get a background check? I mean, maybe you've come here and you've wanted to work in the children's ministry and we've said, you have to have a background check. I know whenever I've had to have a background check, like, I know I've never been arrested, but part of me is like, is there, so, like, I'm afraid that there's gonna be this thing that I forgot about or I blocked from my memory that's uncovered that is gonna, is gonna bring it, you know, come to light. Or have you ever walked into a room, maybe you were invited to a party of a friend of a friend and you weren't sure and you walk into this room or maybe you're just dropping your kids off from school and you walk into a place and you suddenly see somebody that you didn't expect to see and immediately you think of that thing that you said to them the last time you saw that person. Or that thing you did that they laughed at. Um, or that, that, you know, the way you acted like a fool or the offensive thing that you said about somebody that they care about. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you, you see this person unexpectedly and immediately you're thinking, oh great. Uh, and you're wondering, like, are they, are they thinking about what an idiot I am? Um, have they forgiven me? Have they moved on? Have they just completely forgotten? Or are they gonna kind of ruminate at this event too about, um, about what I've done? Do they remember? Or how about this, imagine if, um, if none of those kind of hits you. Imagine this. Imagine if you had some sort of a recorder that just hung around your neck and it went with you everywhere. 
And it recorded not just everything you said, not just everything you did, but everything you thought. And at some point in the future, uh, you, you don't know when, at some point in the future, everything that is on that recorder is going to be broadcast for everyone to see. Um, you know, what does that feel like? Um, embarrassment, guilt, maybe shame. I think that's essentially the fear that many people felt just a few weeks back when Congress voted to allow your internet service provider to sell your browsing history. And uh, you know, on the surface, there's all these complaints about personal privacy and what does that mean, but is there not something deeper lurking below the surface that says if everybody could see what I have done and what I've thought and what I've said and where I've gone, that I would be embarrassed, that I would be brought to shame, that I will feel guilty. Franz Kafka in the trial is posing a question to us. How will you quiet the judge and jury that accuse you? How will you quiet the judge and jury that accuse you? Now, many people today would respond by saying something like, um, well, they would respond by just ignoring that there's even a problem. Um, there's no God keeping a record of sins. If there is a God, surely he's a God of love, and surely he loves me, and he accepts me just as I am. I'm only human, but I'm doing my best. The problem with that, however, is that guilt is real. And even if we don't uh, acknowledge that sin is real, the guilt that comes as a result of sin is very real. I mean, think back again to that, that recorder <laughs> that records everything you've ever done, thought, or said, and it's going to be made known to everyone. Yeah, that feeling in the pit of your stomach is not God coming and accusing you. Um, that feeling in the pit of your stomach is you accusing you. It's the reality that I don't live up to my own standards, much less God's. So how's everybody feeling now? Pretty, pretty good? Okay. Wanted to start off with some good news this morning. All of this is just a setup to help you see what incredibly good news it is when we come to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is the central point of the book of Leviticus. And, the, um, and what that means for us is it's the climax of the book. It's the high point of the book. It, is, it would have been for God's people in the Old Testament the high point of the year. Um, it was the, the kind of the, uh, maybe the Christmas day, the, the, the day around which the whole year revolved for um, the Israelites in the Old Testament. Um, and what we see in Leviticus 16 is not a God who accuses his people, but a God who forgives. The Day of Atonement is the holiest day of the year. It is the one day when God's people in the Old Testament would carry out this ritual um, this ritual that would atone or pay for their sins, uh, whether committed intentionally or unintentionally throughout the year. And in that, there's this one day where there's kind of a reckoning every day. It's a little bit, I think, like April 15th is for us. It's a little bit like tax day. It's the one day of the year where, you know, avoid it as much as you want, but there will be a day when all debts will need to be accounted for. Uh, there is a day when, when all debts are called due. Okay, it's a little bit like tax day. But I think even more than that, um, it's a celebration. It's a celebra it goes beyond just accounting because the goal of the, the Day of Atonement 
is much grander. It's not just about um, tabulating everybody's debt and making sure that everyone's debt has been paid for. The debt of sin has been paid for. But God's goal for the Day of Atonement is that you... Let me say this carefully. It's not just that your sin is forgiven, but it's, it's beyond that that you would know that your sin is forgiven. Does that make sense? It's one thing to have your sin forgiven. It's another thing to actually know that your sin is forgiven. God wants you to know that you are forgiven and therefore to live in the freedom that comes from not having to carry around the debt that you owe. Um, I want you to see three things that are going to have to happen in your life if you are not going to live like a character in a friend's Kafka novel, going from crazy to elated, despondent, despair, and back and forth. There are three things that are going to have to happen in your life, and, uh, and they're all here in Leviticus 16. The first is this, that you're going to have to have a substitute. You need a substitute. What we've seen throughout Leviticus is this, that Leviticus is about living in the presence of God. It's about knowing God. Uh, not just knowing that there is a God, not just knowing that like somewhere far away in the heavens, way beyond the planet, uh, a former planet, you know, Pluto, that there is a God that he doesn't, you know, every once in a while he pays attention, but most of the time he doesn't really, you know, interfere in my life. He doesn't really know what's going on, that he doesn't really care. Leviticus is, is showing us that there's a God that you can know, that there's a God that you can meet with. It's introducing us to a God whom, uh, to whom you can run, uh, a God that you can depend on. Leviticus is introducing us to a God who cares for you. He cares about your work. He cares about your kids. He cares about your relationships. He cares about your marriage. Leviticus is introducing us to a God who will fight on your behalf. Leviticus brings us face to face with a God that we don't just acknowledge for an hour or two every week or maybe before we eat, but a God that we can know who is with us 24-7, 365. That's the goal of Leviticus. But there's a massive problem, and it is this. How can somebody like me, with all that I know that I am, enter into the presence of God? I mean, it's really cavalier and, you know, trendy or whatever to say something like, I just believe that God loves people and he accepts them. You know, the reality is, in the Bible, whenever an angel shows up, the first thing an angel says is, do not be afraid. It's not like the way angels say hi. Why do they do that? It's because (laughs) angels show up, they come from the presence of God, and people are terrified, right? To walk into the presence of God as I am on my own would be utterly terrifying. We could not stand it. So how can we come into the presence of a God who is holy? The answer is the Day of Atonement. Or to put it another way, how can, how can a God who is just let us off the hook? How can God be just and merciful at the same time? The answer is the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, we read about these preparations. He would, he would put on special clothes, and he, would, he would wash, and he would prepare. Uh, for about a week, he would make preparations. And then it says, um, we didn't read this, but in verse 7, it says, Then he, the high priest, shall take two goats... And set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one uh, and the other lot for Azazel. We'll talk more about Azazel in a minute. So you have got these two goats. 
one of them is going to live, and one of them is going to be a sacrifice. And the first thing that we're seeing here, that if you're going to come into the presence of God, you're going to have to have a substitute. You, we cannot enter into the presence of God directly. And so what the priest is going to do is he's going to take this goat and he's going to sacrifice it. And then he goes into the, temp, the tabernacle, which is uh, the, the place that God has made himself known, his, his literal presence on earth. And he's going to go into the Holy of Holies. Um, and this is, a, this is the most holy room on, you know, on earth. And this is a room where only the high priest can go. And he can only go this one day of the year. And he's going to go, having, having sacrificed this goat, he's going to take the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies. And he's going to sprinkle the blood of the goat on the altar. And what this pictures for us is this, that the cost of our rebellion... The penalty for disregarding uh, God and what he has done and just kind of living in a way that seems okay to me at any given moment. The penalty for rebellion against God is death. But God is willing to accept a substitute. The blood of the goat is brought into the Holy of Holies to say, I deserve death, but I can enter into God's presence because another has given up its blood for me. What this is showing us is this. You cannot be forgiven by God unless you approach him with a substitute. Let me give you a, uh, a picture of how this works. Um, each of us has had the experience where someone has wronged us or we've wronged someone. And there's this thing that stands between us. And it's hard to look that person in the eye. Right? Or every parent surely knows this. There's been a, you know, maybe there's been a noise. Maybe there's been a big crash in your house, maybe there's been like a complete absence of, something happens, you know? And all of a sudden you're like, something is not right. And you run into the other room and your kids are there and you go, what happened? And they go, nothing. (laughs) What did you, what were you thinking? I don't know. (laughs) And what they say and 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 their lack of eye contact communicate are two totally different things, right? And what do you do as a parent? You say, look at me. Look me in the eye. Tell me what happened. And then hopefully if you're a good parent, you say, I love you. But now we have to deal with this thing that's happened, right? Um, What's happening in Leviticus 16 is coming into the holiest room in the world. The throne room of God himself. Coming into his very presence. And God is saying, if you're going to come into my presence and you're going to look me in the eye you are going to have to come by way of a substitute. You can look me in the eye, God is saying, and I won't require your life from you because your substitute has given up its blood. It has shed its, has shed its blood. It's given up its life for you. But you cannot come into the presence of God on the basis of your own life and live. You can only come into the presence of God. You can only look God in the eye because, or if, you come by way of a substitute. What I want you to see here uh, is something remarkable. On the Day of Atonement, there was one man who one day a year could come into the physical, literal presence of God. One person out of the whole world, one day a year. But when Jesus comes in the New Testament, uh, the, the writers of the New Testament begin to pick up on the language of the Day of Atonement uh, when they talk about Jesus. And uh, when, the, when, the, when the Gospels talk about the death of Jesus on the cross, 
What it, what it says is that the veil in the temple was torn in two. The veil behind which the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies and only one day a year is torn in two from top to bottom. And what it's, what it's showing is this picture that God who has removed himself from the presence of sinful men and women and boys and girls like us, that veil has been separated and the presence of God is no longer hidden away from his people because of Jesus. And what it's showing us is that Jesus is the one true sacrifice. That no one was ever made right with God because a goat was sacrificed on his or her behalf. But that every goat, every year, the sacrifice of a goat was signifying to God's people, you can only come into my presence by way of a substitute. And when that perfect substitute comes, he goes behind the veil and offers his own life as our substitute. We can look God in the face because of Jesus' sacrifice. Okay, but there's still one step further. If you go to the very end of the Bible, and you look at Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, it's a picture of not actually the end of the world. Everybody thinks that Revelation's talking about the end of the world. It's not all talking about the end of the world. What Revelation 4 and 5 is picturing for us is actually what's happening right now, the heart of all reality. And the Apostle John is given a view of what happens when the curtain is kind of pulled back on human history. And what he sees in Revelation 4 and 5 is that there is a room that is the throne room of God that stands at the center of the universe. And there God is seated on his throne in radiant, majestic beauty. And he is surrounded by angels who never stop worshiping him. And he is surrounded by elders who, never, who continually cast their crowns before him in worship. And what the Apostle John sees there is the one seated on the throne calls to the believer and says, you can come in here. And what it's picturing for us is that the ultimate goal of everyone who is in Christ is to live forever in the presence of God himself. To look into the face of God and live um, and be known and be filled with joy because we have been forgiven. Here's what I want you to see. Whatever you think, uh, whatever you might think about God and him forgiving people, you know, it's really common is that God just forgives everybody. Um, I think of it like, you know, if I'm walking through a crowded restaurant, like I'm walking through a Starbucks, and it's crowded, I kick the back of somebody's chair, I go, oh, I'm sorry. That's no problem, man. No big deal. That's what we think, like, forgiveness is like. God's just going to, that's no big deal. What you have to see is that whatever you think about how God is going to forgive you, you're going to have to reckon with Jesus. Jesus is the one who is our perfect sacrifice, who brings us into the presence of God. That's the first thing. How can I be forgiven in an objective sense? How can God bring me into his presence? We can only come into God's presence because a sacrifice has taken our place and you have been forgiven. But the second thing is this. Okay, maybe that's true. But it doesn't necessarily affect the way that I feel about it. How can I actually feel that I am forgiven? And the second thing that you need is, is what we see in the next part of the passage. That you need not just a substitute, you need a scapegoat. Um, it's such a beautiful thing, I think, that this is a part of the Day of Atonement. Because if you think about what's happening with this first goat... It's all kind of happening behind closed doors. It's a priest doing something removed from the people. And you might just like get a newspaper headline that like, Day of Atonement happened again. 
but it doesn't necessarily affect anything about the life of God's people um, day in and day out. And so I think it's incredibly beautiful that there's this second goat, there's this second thing that happens on the Day of Atonement. Um, Look at verse 21 and 22. It says this, Aaron, who's the high priest, he shall lay both his hands on the hand of the live goat. Remember there was these two goats, and they cast lots, and one goat died. This is the second goat. The goat is still alive, and Aaron is going to lay his hands on this goat to identify, um, on behalf of the people, to identify with the goat. Um, And then what's going to happen is Aaron is going to confess the sins. It says uh, the iniquities and the transgressions and the sins of all the people. This kind of threefold um, sins, transgressions, iniquities. uh, It's talking about the complete and whether you did this intentionally, whether you disobeyed God intentionally or accidentally. Everything, the religious sins, the petty sins, the significant sins, the ones that we don't even think to confess. They are all placed on this goat. And uh, if you're reading in the ESV, you might have seen the word Azazel is there in, I think, verse 7. Um, scholars don't really know how to translate this word, but we've all heard the term before. Uh, this is where we get the idea of a scapegoat. All right? we, this is where that idea comes from. What we're seeing here is where this phrase comes from. This goat that uh, the high priest on behalf of the people confesses all of the people's sin onto, uh, and then the, the goat... Uh, that bears those sins. And then there's somebody who is, says, uh, is a man in readiness. So there's somebody who's waiting, and his whole job is to just take a long walk with the goat. And he goes across a ravine, and he goes into the desert, and he goes and he goes and he goes until nobody can see him anymore. And he leaves the goat there, and he comes back, and nobody ever sees the goat that's carrying our sins over again. And it's a picture of having forgiven our sins. God wants to separate them from us. He wants to remove them from us. He doesn't want to just say, okay, the debt for that has been paid, but it still kind of follows you around wherever you go. It's a picture of God taking your sin and removing it out into the desert where you will never see it again. He wants you to feel the weight removed. He wants you to feel that you're forgiven. Uh, A while back, I um, had a friend... Who, uh, somebody I love who um, had done something, he had wronged someone, and he had gotten caught, and, uh, and I was with him when he had to go and apologize to that person. And we drove together as he was going to go and apologize, and uh, I was very quiet in the car. Um, you know, occasionally he would say, what do you think is going to happen? But mostly you could just see the weight of what he had done, just kind of eating himself alive, eating himself up. And he went in, and he confessed, and his apology was accepted. And he came back and got in the car, and we drove, we drove back. And immediately you could see the weight lifted from his friend's shoulders. And he began to talk, and he began to joke, and he began to just be chatty, and he began to, to be himself again. The, the tangible weight of the guilt had been lifted from his shoulders, and he felt forgiven. And that's what God wants you to feel here too. Your sin has been forgiven, it has been carried away, it has been taken out into the wilderness, and you do not have to carry it around with you anymore. God isn't going to bring it up again um, every time, you know, every week he's just going to remind you, hey, remember last week? He's not going to bring, he's not going to remind you. 
He's not going to remind you every time you do the same thing again. He's not going to throw it in your face. Your scapegoat has taken your sin and he has carried it into the wilderness and it is gone. So you don't need to carry it around with you anymore. And that's why when Jesus comes in John chapter 1 and Jesus uh, is going out to meet John the Baptist, John the Baptist looks up and he sees Jesus a long way away and Jesus, uh, and John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him and he says, John the Baptist says, the crowds that are gathered there, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus doesn't just pay for your sins. He does. But he removes the guilt from you. He removes them from you. It's no longer yours. So you don't need to carry it around with you anymore. The weight has been lifted from your shoulders. So that's the good news. You are forgiven, and God wants you to feel forgiven. But the third thing that I want you to see is this. What, what should we do? Okay, that's great, but what should we do? Well, the third thing is you need to actually act like you're forgiven. And that's the last part of Leviticus. We see in this passage, um, uh, what I've talked about so far is what the priests really does, the priest does on behalf of the people. But how are the people themselves to actually respond? What does it look like to act like you're forgiven? Well, verse 29 says this. It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. Okay, what does it look like to act like you are forgiven? You should afflict yourself and you should do no work. Now, isn't that great news? Wow, afflict myself. Okay, so I'm forgiven, so now I'm supposed to go beat myself up, right? Um, how long am I supposed to whip myself, right? Um, like, which wall should I bang my head against and for how long? Um, when it says to afflict Yourself. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is adopting a new posture. Um, it's saying that we are to stop trying to act like we've got it all together. Um, it's adopting an attitude of humility. It's letting go of our defensiveness. It's letting go of that instinct to, to defend ourselves, to come to our own defense. Uh, it's letting go of the instinct to lash out when we are criticized. It's, it's adopting a posture of humility. Um, but the other thing is rest. And we talked about rest a few weeks ago in Leviticus, but um, I'm not going to say that much. But, but what it's saying is this. Um, it's, what it's not saying is that there, there's this legalistic requirement that you must not do certain things um, on a certain day. What it's talking about is having the confidence in God that allows you to actually stop working. Do you understand the difference? It's not saying work really hard to not work on this one day. It's saying you can rest because you know that God is working on your behalf and you can just stop. I think it's fair to say that there are few things that define us more as people in 2017 than our busyness. Our just neurotic, chaotic, always doing of something. And our filling our lives with um, technology that allows us to never stop working. And study after study is coming. I think we know somewhere, you know, in the part of our head where we know it, but we don't really want to acknowledge it, that there's a problem. Um, that, our, that our busyness, that our constant rushing around, that our never stopping working is bad for us, that it's toxic. But we don't know what to do about it. Um, when we, what, what we do know 
understand what this says in my notes right here. <laughs> so let me just say it. <laughs> when we know that we are forgiven, we can rest. Clear enough, right? <laughs> if we just think we're forgiven, we'll never stop. But when we know that we're forgiven, we can stop rushing around and we can rest. And what that means for us is this, that even, um, you know, there, there are kind of rare moments when we stop working or when we like just cease activity um, or we just stop doing whatever it is that we do, even if we don't necessarily call it work. And yet even in those moments that w- when we cease activity, there is still often that nervous anxiety in the back of our minds that tells us like we probably should be working. And so even when we're not working, we feel guilty about are not working. And what I want you to see here is that the person who knows that they are forgiven is the person who is able to stop working, is a person who is able to rest. Uh, A person who isn't just forgiven but knows that they are forgiven is a person who is simultaneously humble and confident. You have to be confident in God's work on your behalf to stop working. But you have to be humble. You have to adopt this this posture of humility We have to afflict ourselves by adopting this posture of humility. And you will only do both of those simultaneously. You will either only be humble and confident when you know, when you know that you're forgiven. Some of us like have an inclination towards one or the other. Um, Some of us tend towards a confidence. um, And we sort of like waltz around our lives with this sort of like arrogant swagger that says like, I'm fine. What's your problem? Um, And what we need to see is that confidence in God is not the same thing as bravado. Bravado comes from ignoring the problem and refusing to admit that our sin is real. But confidence comes from knowing that your sin is forgiven. There's an incredible difference. But on the other hand, some of us tend towards like the affliction side of the spectrum. We're the Eeyores of the world. Maybe inwardly, if not outwardly. Uh, We might say things like, well, maybe God forgives me, but I just can't quite forgive myself. Um, As if we could ever have higher standards than God himself. (laughs) God forgives me, but I can't forgive. I'm just such an awful person. False humility is not the same as a pervasive gratitude because God has forgiven me. You can be confident or you can be humble, but you'll only be both if you know that you're forgiven. So much of the time, I feel like I'm bouncing between one or the other. Some days I'm confident, some days I'm humble. Very rarely am I both. And I have to say um, that, that nothing has brought that to light in my life more than just the last two years of being the pastor and the church planter here. Um, of this church. Um, I think it's safe to say that this is the hardest thing I have ever done. And part of that is that it's incredibly rewarding when, when it's going well. And yet it also means that I live with this, like, sometimes it's just barely below the surface. Most of the time it's like boiling over. Anxiety, fear. Um, is this, are we going to make it as a church? Um, Am I enough as the pastor of this church? Is there something more I should be doing? 
and, and, and what I want to, the reason I say that is not to like engage in confession <laughs> for myself, but to, but to say that God in his goodness constantly shows me, reminds me that he loves me, that he is so good for me, that even when I'm afraid, he is so overwhelmingly good to me. And so I just want to share with you one thing that happened this week that somewhat affects you, it affects me too. Um, so I think like six weeks ago, we had a, a meeting where we just kind of talked about the, um, some of the realities that we're facing as a church about a year in, and we talked about some of the financial realities, and um, one of the financial realities that we shared with you is that at kind of the current state of our finances as a church, uh, we are going to run out of money in February. And that doesn't mean that we're actually going to get to February and run out of money and shut down and go home. But what it means is that there are some real, like, significant things that are going to have to happen. Either we're going to have to drastically reduce our, in, um, our expenses as a church, um, or more people are going to have to start to give. And, I mean, that's probably going to have to, that's going to, have to happen in the long run. But, but in the short term, what it meant for me is I'm going to have to go raise a lot more money. And it's, I'm happy to do that, but it's work, it's hard work, um, and it doesn't just, you know, money doesn't grow on trees, <laughs> like they say. And so I live with that, and I live with the anxiety of that, and I live with the fear of that, and I live with, like, are we going to make it, or are we, gonna, or are we not going to make it, or are we going to have to let Jason go, and what does that say about me, and, and I just carry that around with me all the time, and God is over and over and over again coming and saying, I love you, and I've got this. And this week on Wednesday morning, I was um, on the phone with my church planning coach, Doug Swigert, who preached a couple weeks ago. Um, and he said, hey, have you looked at your, like, um, your fundraising report recently? And I said, no. And he said, because somebody called me, and they said they had some money they wanted to give, and I you know, kind of pointed at them in our direction. I don't know who it was. It was an anonymous donor who gave $37,000 to our church. And according to Carl, who keeps track of the spreadsheet of doom. That means that we now will not run out of money until August of 2018. Or we might spend a little bit more and we'll run out sooner than that. But that gives us a year before we're going to run out of money. And so that's good news for all of you. But what I also am trying to say is God is over and over and over again coming to me in my fear and my anxiety and saying, I love you and I have forgiven you and I want you to know that you are forgiven and I want you to feel like you are loved. Humility is not the same thing as beating ourselves up. Humility is the humility to say, you know what, I don't know what's going to happen, but God is in control. That God is going to continue to show up. That God is going to continue to provide because he loves me and he's forgiven me. What about you? Do you know, do you know that you're forgiven? I mean, do you walk around with the weight of your past on your shoulders, or do you walk around breathing easy, not because you're such a John Wayne, I got it all under control, kind of bravado, swagger, arrogant person, but do you walk around because, with just a lightness because you know, you know that God has forgiven you? I'm going to finish with this. I've used this story before. I've told you this story before. And I'm a little bit hesitant to do it today. Um, but I think it's just such a perfect picture of what it looks like to know that you were forgiven. Um, several years ago, 
a man um, tragedy struck in the family of Stephen Curtis Chapman. Um, Stephen Curtis Chapman is a, a Christian musician who lives in uh, Nashville. And tragedy struck when his teenage son was driving his car and pulling out of their family's driveway and accidentally hit and killed uh, his five-year-old sister. And the incredible thing that happened that day is that Stephen Curtis Chapman picked up his daughter, not knowing if, if this was the end, put her in the car to take, drive her to the hospital. And as he drove out of the driveway, he paused to roll down the window and shout to his son who was driving the car, Will Franklin, your father loves you. In an interview later, Stephen Curtis Chapman said that he didn't remember saying that that somebody had heard it. But he said he did remember the sense that he might lose not one, but two children that day. And I think that that statement is an incredible insight. It's a beautiful insight into this man's understanding of how the gospel works. Because obviously, I mean, that's a tragedy that no parent would ever wish but to have the insight to know that my son is now going to bear the weight of this for the rest of his life. The danger that day was not simply that um, the father would lose one son, but, or the one child, but the father would lose two. The danger that day was that, um, not that the father would reject his son, but that the son would suffer for the rest of his life under the weight of what he has done. And because he has done that, his relationship with his dad would begin to crumble. And Stephen Kirsch Chapman shows an incredible understanding of the gospel here because if he's not going to lose two children that day, two things have to happen. One is that the father has to forgive the son. But the second is that the son has to know that his father has forgiven him. He has to feel it. He has to know that over the weight and the anxiety and the guilt of his actions, the voice of his father is calling louder that says, my son, my daughter, I love you. I love you. Have you heard the voice of your father? Have you heard him call to you? Have you heard him shout over the weight that you carry from the guilt of your actions? Have you heard the voice that calls above all that what you all you have done that says, I love you. I love you. You are mine. Many of us are hoping that we can just ignore our sin and that if we just ignore I talk to people all the time and think, I just don't believe in sin. And guess what? It doesn't take care of the problem. The guilt that we carry around tells us that sin is real. Our inability to name what we've done tells us that guilt is real. Our inability to come to God and confess our sin tells us that guilt is real. Our inability to go to God, to run to Him, shows us that guilt we experience is real. We cannot look God in the eye without a substitute. You don't need me to stand here and tell you that you're guilty. Every one of us knows that. If we have just the tiny tiniest bit of self-reflection. 
But what you do need to hear is that you have been forgiven. That the guilt of your sin has been paid for because Jesus has been a, is your perfect sacrifice. That God has removed your sin from you. Having paid for it, he has removed your sin from you. He does not want you to feel guilty over your sin anymore. And then he wants you, because you feel guilty, to respond to him with humility and boldness. Because he loves you. He loves you. And he shouts over whatever you have done, whatever you think hangs over your head, he shouts to you, I love you. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this beautiful picture of the, of the lengths that you were willing to go to, of, of the depths that you would sink to in order to forgive us and in order to make us know that we have been forgiven. And God, I pray that um, anyone who is here this morning with a guilty conscience, God, whether um, for the hundredth time, the thousandth time, or the first time, that you would enable us, that you would help us to simply call out to you. That we would say, Father, my, my guilt is more than I can carry on my own. Please forgive me in Jesus' name.